Hey, everyone. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And uh, it is Mother's Day, so we are going to be talking about a mother, the mother of all computing machines. Okay, I'm being a little loose there when I say mother, but not when I say machine. I mean a real honest-to-goodness mechanical contraption, not some itty-bitty microcircuits etched on delicate silicon chips pushing wee electrons around. I mean iron, cogs, drive shafts, levers, cams, racks, pinions, nuts, bolts, all of it meshing and turning and whirring and clanking and driven, get this, by steam. The apparatus I'm talking about was actually designed, dreamt up in the 1830s by the brilliant and, shall we say, colorful English mathematician Charles Babbage. He called his creation the analytical engine. And it really could analyze, it really could compute in ways that even Babbage himself didn't immediately grok. It took another eccentric genius to recognize the true potential of the machine. It was Babbage's young friend Ada Lovelace, the daughter of the mad poet Lord Byron, a little touched herself, but a mathematical prodigy, no doubt. She was the one who saw in the midst of all that moving metal the possibility of general purpose computing. And this was a hundred years before the dawn of what we now call the information age. So you could say that Babbage was the original hardware guy and Ada the original software gal. Their uh, intellectual partnership is the stuff of techie legend. And now it's the stuff of a new book, a wonderfully geeky compendium that is part comic book, part historical investigation, and part cabinet of curiosities, packed with engrossing detail and artifacts and some very meticulous pictorial embellishments by its author, the animator and illustrator, Sidney Padua. Sidney, welcome to the show. Would you uh, start by reading the title page from your book? Uh, sure. Um, the book is The Thrilling Adventures of Loveless and Babbage, with interesting and curious anecdotes of celebrated and distinguished characters, fully illustrating a variety of instructive and amusing scenes as performed within and without the remarkable Difference Engine. Embellished with portraits and scientific diagrams. A very Victorian title. Yeah, I worked hard to um, find enough fonts to lay it out in the proper <laughs> Victorian way. Did they have comic books in uh, Victorian England? They came pretty close, actually. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, Punch Magazine and things like that would run something extremely resembling a comic strip. You yourself were not a comic artist before you undertook this. No, um, I'm an animator. Um, I used to do the old school hand-drawn stuff and got dragged into the computer uh, end of things. Uh, but no, this is my first comic. You animate monsters? Monsters, yeah, pretty much that's where the bread and butter is these For days. For movies? Yeah, yeah. Any I've seen? Uh, Clash of the Titans. <laughs> I missed it. depends it. on your taste. <laughs> I missed it. Heard all about it, though. But that was you? Uh, yeah, the new one, not the old right. stop motion one. I'm not that old. Right, yeah. right. No, I could tell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's that's quite a claim to fame. But uh, drawing a comic book, one inspired by the story of two Victorian intellectuals, geniuses. Well, you know what I did, uh, Sydney, when I got your book? Um, I don't know why, but I turned immediately to the back. <laughs> and that's where you won me over instantly because you've got diagrams. <laughs> Hand-drawn cartoon diagrams of this amazing machine invented by Charles Babbage, the analytical engine. Yep. And you actually show me how it works. Oh, well, yeah. It, um, 
I think when I started kind of researching the book, I was just really amazed that even quite detailed secondary books on computer history didn't give you a picture of the analytical engine. <laughs> well, my immediate thought was it must have taken a very special person to create this book. <laughs> the level of detail, the level of technical finickiness, you know, even though it's cartoons, what kind of person are you? Um, apparently I'm some sort of weird nut. <laughs> but I also got this feeling, tell me if I'm way off here, that this was a labor of love. There's just something that leaps off every page. Oh, yeah, thanks. I mean, I guess obsession might be the word. It certainly wasn't a commercial proposition. But passion. That, yeah, passion. That's a lot more uh, noble sounding. Did you identify with these two characters in some way? Yes and no. I mean, I'm not a super genius, for one thing. Um Maybe I don't have the driven aspect of it. I guess I, it's, it's more that I admire them. I admire their um, ability to pursue this uh, to the bitter end uh, that they did. And I guess it was for them kind of bitter. Yeah, it was a horribly <laughs> bitter ending, unfortunately. We'll save it for later in the interview. <laughs> We're talking again about Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace. Do you said Loveless? Um, well, apparently the current Loveless family pronounces it Loveless. Um, it's spelled like Lovelace, but they don't want her to be confused with the porn actress Linda Lovelace, right? That's uh, that's the thing. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> and her real name wasn't Ada Lovelace. It was? Uh, well, it depends on what year it is. She was born Ada Gordon, the daughter of George Gordon, who is much better known as Lord Byron. Uh, she married the Earl of Lovelace, um, who was then William King. So then she was Ada King. Uh, then he became the Earl of Lovelace, and so she became the Countess of Lovelace. Um, it's it's incorrect to call her Ada Lovelace, but on the other hand, um, she signed her letters Ada Lovelace, and everyone called her Ada Lovelace. So it's uh, it seems to be the way to go. It's good enough for me. Right. How did you stumble into this subject? conceive this great interest in and passion for the story of these two crazy, eccentric, brilliant people and the machine, the machine above all, right? <laughs> oh, for me, it's all about the machine. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it, I really did stumble into it um, completely by accident. I mean, if you told me five years ago that one day I would be in Google giving a talk about computers, um, I would not have believed you. I'm not a computery person at all. I was a really reluctant convert to um, 3D animation. I only went into it because 2D animation had been pretty much completely extinguished at that point. I really resent computers, actually. But um, I started it actually because I was in a pub with a friend of mine, uh, Sue Sherman, um, who started this thing called Ada Lovelace Day which is a sort of an online festival to celebrate women in computing. Um, it's, it's, it's quite well known. You might have heard of it. Um, this was in 2009, and she said to me, she said, Sydney, you're a, you're a woman in technology now. You should do a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't even know who Ada Lovelace was. I think I'd heard of the analytical engine as a thing, um, but I was really ignorant about the whole thing. So I looked it up on Wikipedia and just found this amazing story. I mean, it's just an unbelievable story um, with all these dramatic um, personalities and remarkable coincidences. Um, but I thought, you know, if I didn't know who she was, I thought, well, probably um, a lot of people don't know. So um, just that evening I sat down and sketched out with kind of really rough drawings, just a sort of a little short biographical comic 
kind of explaining, yeah, she was the daughter of Byron. She was raised by mathematicians um, because her mother was afraid she'd become, you know, a mad poet like her father, which presumably poetry being a hereditary trait. So her mother kept her away from poetry and math is the cure for poetry, right? Yeah, math is obviously the opposite <laughs> of poetry. So there was But it's actually not. Yeah. That's the thing. She wound up combining it in some sort of hideous monstrous experiment. She's become very famous and I don't know whether she ever lapsed into obscurity, but certainly for the last twenty or more years, uh techies have known about her. There was a programming language named mm-hmm. after her. I guess created for use by the U.S. Department of Defense. Yep. Do you write Ada? I don't know. It's supposed to be quite a difficult, uh, uh, cranky code, apparently. Um, but it's very secure. That's its main uh, advantage, I think. And she is kind of a heroine for for people who think of women as having not played a role generally in the uh, origins of computer technology and all of that, because she certainly was very important. Can you explain for us what she contributed? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll give you a bit of background on the Babbage engines. Um, Babbage um, was we should we should introduce uh, him too, I guess. Yeah, they're kind of well, they're a dynamic duo. It's quite hard to kind of <laughs> separate them out um, from each other um, because Babbage was the hardware guy. I mean, he was a Lucasian professor of mathematics, like Newton was, and like Stephen Hawking is now. Um, so he was pretty, at Cambridge. Yeah, he was a pretty smart guy. And he had devoted himself to plans, <laughs> always unrealized plans for these incredibly elaborate calculating machines. And he met Ada when she was 18. He was 42. Um, he used to throw these very, I wouldn't say crazy parties. I doubt they were very crazy, but um, very popular, very crowded soirees for the intellectual life of London uh, in the 1830s. And Ada came to one of these parties and saw his demonstration of a little fragment of one of these calculators that he had built. And she immediately became passionately in love with the machine. She immediately asked him to to borrow the blueprints, um, which I think is a really charming detail. (laughs) I mean, that took some nerve for an 18-year-old girl to, you know, go to this great man and say, ah, can I see the plans? That year, round about that year, um, Babbage began to develop uh, a much more complicated version of the machine. He also (laughs) hadn't built um, the analytical engine, um, which was this elaborate calculator with punch card programming. Eventually, it had feedback loops, it had memory, it had all these uh, incredible little widgets and devices, subroutines, all this stuff. It was pretty much exactly a computer. The more you look at it, the more it looks exactly like a computer just built out of cogwheels um, and driven by steam. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, forget about the electronics part, the silicon part, the tiny transistors, and replace it all with gears and levers and wheels and belts and make it as big as a steam locomotive and power it by steam, and mm-hmm. there's your computer. Yeah. But it has, as you say, it had punch cards for programs, which I know he had adapted that idea from the Jacquard loom which was a uh, you know a loom for in the textile industry that would use punch cards to guide the patterns, but it also had the computer architecture that's still to some extent used today a yes, memory absolutely a CPU he didn't mm-hmm. call it a CPU but a central processing unit yeah even had a printer yeah yeah the printer is marvelous they built the printer they have um, the difference engine which is the calculator the simpler machine 
they have that one built at the Computer History Museum uh, down in Mountain View, uh, and it's just a beautiful thing. And the printer itself has as many parts as the whole rest of the machine. Wow. It's uh, absolutely wow. gorgeous. But uh, Babbage himself, who conceived of this thing, though never built it, as you say, just a fragment of the difference engine, which is a much simpler embryo of mm-hmm. what became this gigantic idea of the analytical engine, the first general purpose computer. He was quite a guy. I mean, the reason you love these characters, <laughs> Ada was, well, first of all, Ada, as you say, was Lord Byron's daughter. She was brilliant, a real flair for mathematics mm-hmm. and logical thinking. And eccentric in her own way. <laughs> yeah. Lady Byron's um, efforts to uh, extinguish the Byronic temperament uh, did not work at all. It just took a strange, mutated course, I guess. So rather than winding up with a mad poet, she wound up with a mad scientist. <laughs> yeah. And Babbage was a real piece of work. Oh, Babbage was wonderful. He's so much, in so many ways, the stereotypical nerd you know, he had all these obsessions. He loved breaking codes, terrible dresser. Um, he was quite, um, I wouldn't say he was socially awkward, but he was certainly, you know, quite blunt and not great at navigating the niceties. Um, but he wrote all sorts of wonderful books. He's, he has a wonderful autobiography, which um, his, uh, his personality laid bare, basically. Oh, yeah. What's it called? Uh, Passages from the Life of a Philosopher. And philosopher was sort of an all-purpose term in those days for a smart guy? Yeah. Well, this was the, this was the period of the 1830s that they were transitioning from natural philosophers uh, who were sort of gentlemen who messed around with um, science to become actual scientists. The term scientist was actually coined during this time uh, in the 30s and 40s. I had heard that. I'm glad you confirmed it. And uh, something else I learned from you. I know I'm jumping all over the place mm-hmm. here, but I can't help but insert this. The expression balls out <laughs> has nothing to do with testicles. No. It comes from the Industrial Revolution mm-hmm. and uh, all of these contraptions they were inventing. Want to describe it for us? Uh, oh, yeah, the governor. I love the governor of a steam engine because um, I came up all of this stuff fresh doing the book. And, and you always see a steam engine and you know the little worry, willy, uh, <laughs> willy, <laughs> the worry thing on the top uh, with the balls that goes round and round. Um, that's called the governor. And the whole point of it is um, if you have too much steam, it starts going really fast and centrifugal force pushes the balls outwards, which closes the little choke, which is a choke because it chokes off the air. So that slows it down, and as they slow down, the balls drop down and open the choke, and a little more air comes in, so it regulates the speed of the machine to keep it going at a regular rate. Yeah, these these brass or steel or iron balls on arms that swing, and the faster this sort of central axle goes around, the balls are forced out, as you say, by centrifugal force, and they actuate a, a mechanism that shuts down you say chokes the engine. Mm-hmm. It's a feedback device. Yeah, it's a self-acting and machine. They a call self-acting it. machine. Yeah. And, it, and balls out means just to go really fast. As people, race car drivers still use the term, although mm-hmm. I bet they think about their testicles when they use it. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably always thinking about their testicles. <laughs> you can cut that out. <laughs> no, no, no. No, my show, believe me. This is, this is one of the safer versions of my show. Ah, Okay. But back to Charles Babbage. Uh, you describe him as a combination of Mr. Pickwick, Mr. Toad, Don Quixote, and Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> Brilliant, compulsive. I mean, one of these compulsive systematizers, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he analyzed puns. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's got his little chart. He's explaining. There's a section in his autobiography for some reason where he explains puns and how they work. And this is adorable little chart. And he explains it. <laughs> 
And everything else, he analyzed everything else. He even did like a what you describe as a survey of the tech scene in 1820s. Yeah, England. he wrote one of the first popular science books um, on the economy of machinery and manufacturers, uh, kind of explaining the factory system and how it all worked. Yeah, he's a great guy. I love Babbage. Uh, and he'd hold these parties, as you said, and, and you know, in attendance might be people like, oh, Charles Dickens, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Michael Faraday, yep. the, the great physicist. Would George Eliot have been part of that circle? Yeah, George Eliot is my big cheat. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> she shows up in the comics. She's a little late. Yeah. She's a little late. Yeah. Um, but um, Darwin was there. Darwin. Yeah. Um, Florence Nightingale, um, if she was in sufficient health. Um, Duke of Wellington was a good friend of Babbage's. Um, he knew everybody. He was a really very sociable and very well-connected person. Did he wear his wellies? <laughs> it would have been crazy, though. To, I mean, London at this time, at least the intellectual and scientific and artistic circle you're describing, was a pretty tight-knit mm-hmm. group of you know, amazing geniuses and, uh, you know, incredibly creative people all concentrated in a relatively small world, right? Yeah. Are you a Victorianophile or whatever <laughs> the word is? I'm not really. Um, I think, I mean, one of the things that you will note is that these are all men. Um, women's place was actually becoming more constricted um, during this time. Even with a, a woman head of state? Well, Queen Victoria herself um, had very strong opinions about the position of women, Um all of them, except for herself, of course, <laughs> ought to be serving a subordinate, uh, supportive role. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, for me, um, what's fascinating about the Victorians is how similar they are to us. This was the great era of accelerating capitalism, um, of mechanization, of systemati- systematization. Globalization. Globalization, financial crises, um, you know all this all this stuff we can see in in its simple form you know and it's it, it's sort of baby you know cute form <laughs> perhaps um in the victorian era this was the industrial revolution and they were going from horse and buggy and you know this just the crudest technology that had existed for centuries and there was this explosion of machinery mm-hmm. and new processes yeah i mean in terms of from 1820 for example you'd be going around in horses and carriages and s- under sailing ships um you know you'd send a letter by post and some post boy would you know run down the street on a pony um, you know, 20 years later, you'd have telegraphs and iron steamships driven by propellers going across the ocean. Trains. Yeah, the the network of train systems, you know, exploding across England. Um, you have factories springing up. I mean, it was extremely unsettling to the Victorians. I mean, everything changed incredibly quickly and visibly. I mean, for us, a lot of the change is invisible. Um, you know, it's a lot of tech and software, and it's it's this unseeable stuff. Yes. But for them, yes. it's giant factories and steam trains screaming down their backyard all of a sudden. Absolutely. And that's why I myself, and I think a lot of other people, have a kind of um, nostalgic. There's something about that era that seems a bit magical because you could see the workings of things. Mm-hmm. They were huge. Yeah, they yeah. loomed over you, you know, the machines of that era. Everything was visible, and now everything is tiny and hidden. You hold your cell phone. You have no idea what's going on in there. But back then, and the analytical engine's a perfect example, mm-hmm. if it had been built, or your drawing's the next best thing, <laughs> y- you see the wheels turning. Yeah. You, know? you see the calculations being performed. 
I mean, for me, it was a, it was absolutely magical. I mean, to figure out what the analytical engine would have looked like, um, I had to because the, there were a lot of scholarly papers that went into the mathematics of how it worked and had some small diagrams of bits of it. But of course, I'm a comic artist, so I just wanted you know a nice <laughs> huge ass drawing of this giant machine. Um, so I had to sit down with the plans um, and you know my 3D software, which I work on all day long, and just start doing elevations and and building it. Um, oh, is that how you did it? Yeah, I mean that's the only way to do it, unless you're Charles Babbage and have you know this incredible spatial reasoning brain. Um, it's the only way to do it. You have to <laughs> you have to see how everything works together because it's every every individual part of it is actually quite simple. But it's a lot of parts. It's a really complicated. How many parts? Machine. Do you have any idea? How many individual parts? Oh my gosh! I would. Mm, yeah, I couldn't tell you. I mean, I think there's twenty thousand in the difference engine, and that's a much and that's simpler tiny machine. by yeah, comparison. Yeah, exactly. All the difference engine did was basically all it could do is add. I uh-huh. mean, um, which you know, with gears is actually quite simple, except for the carrying the ones, which is you know, if you, if you see the Mountain View difference engine, the the beautiful arms that ripple up the back, um, they're just carrying the ones. You illustrate that, yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's just an adder. I mean, it's. It's very complicated and beautiful, but actually the printer is the most complicated part, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, people might see on older cars, the, the odometer yeah. is just a series of gears that are adding you exactly, know, with yeah. each rotation. Um, so that's kind of the principle on which the difference engine worked. But the analytical engine, the humongous uh, machine that turned out to be a general purpose computer, and it was Ada... Loveless, mm-hmm. who recognized that fact. Babbage didn't didn't actually realize that. No, and I mean, for the more I know about the analytical engine, the more extraordinary her insight is. I mean, I guess I should I should probably backtrack now because I never did explain exactly what it was that she did. Yeah, Babbage and Lovelace were friends. Um, they corresponded a lot. They but mostly they hung out. I guess you'd say they would sit and have tea. Um, they sherry maybe. Yeah, a little touch of sherry maybe, a little claret. Babbage would send her puzzles, for example. It was a sort of quite sweet, you know, avuncular sort of thing um, because she was very keen on, on mathematics and she would send him questions. I mean, she's, almost, she's badgering him a lot. I mean, mostly what she wanted was in on the analytical engine. You can see that her, her study of mathematics began to take a course specifically to study stuff that would be useful for the engines. So she's writing to him, you know, Oh, if if I ever I could be of use to you, you know, and, and I think Babbage was um, Babbage was a, as a very social, very extroverted guy. He's kind of a, a very unexpected trait in a mathematician who you think of as alone in a room. He really liked to bounce ideas off of people, and and to me it sounds like he was using her as this sort of sounding board, you know, that he would sit down and explain all the bits and what the latest you know iteration of the machine is. But it was exciting for him to have someone who understood, right? Yeah. Because she was smart enough. Yeah. I mean, he himself said, you know, that she was, you know, one of the few people in England who actually understood the machine. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't really, he's not a collaborative person, which was a bit of his downfall in a lot of ways. So this actually went on for about nine years, this sort of one-way relationship. In, in 1841, um, Babbage went to, or actually he went in, in 1840, I think. He went to Europe and delivered this lecture on the analytical engine. Strangely, Babbage never published anything on the engine. Um, he wrote all sorts of giant books on every other subject. He'd never wrote anything on the analytical engine except really vague 
descriptions um, of it. Was he keeping it secret? No, I mean, it was, a, everyone knew it about it. It was a very famous thing. And he was certainly, um, he would certainly lecture to people about it. Uh-huh. Um, but he seems to have had some sort of block about actually sitting down and writing it out. Huh. I mean, the, the, the big problem with Babbage and the Engine is he kept shifting stuff around. He was always changing the plans. So I think publishing a paper on it would have felt like finalizing it. Yeah. Anyway, so um, he gave this lecture, and the lecture was transcribed by um, this guy, Menabrea, who became prime minister of Italy as a <laughs> sort of a sidebar. He wrote it in French, and then... Lovelace was asked, possibly by Charles Wheatstone, the inventor of the telegraph, to do a translation of the paper. And she began adding these footnotes. Um, She would um, reach a point and say, oh, actually, I have a much better illustration of this point uh, than is in the paper. Or actually, I have this idea about this uh, Uh, subject. Um, And the footnotes are longer than the actual text. The footnotes are three times as long (laughs) (laughs) as the actual text and have much more of what we would now recognize as general computing theory. Babbage was a man trying to solve a problem, and that problem was that they didn't have a calculator (laughs) in the 1840s. In those days, they needed a lot of numbers. They needed a lot of calculators. Absolutely. I mean, not only for purposes of science, because as astronomy and all these um, sciences became more advanced, they began to actually need some pretty serious math. But also finances. I mean, the financial system was um, becoming more complex as well, and you need to do annualized interest rates over the course of all these years and whatnot. And while you would sit down and just type it into your um, calculator, someone would have to actually sit down and figure out compound interest over, you know, some of years, or navigators at sea having to figure out, you know, these quite complicated trigonometrical functions. So they had what they called computers, but those were people. They were. They were teams of people. A lot of them were women. Yep, yep, lots of women. What they would do is just do every single iteration of a mathematical function and print it out in these books. So, so you would tables, just look up. Yeah, tables. Mathematical tables. You can buy them, um, logarithm tables in, uh, you know, used bookshops for a yeah. song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants them anymore. But they had all these people doing this, but mistakes got made. That's what you're getting at, right? And Babbage wanted a machine that would just crank this stuff out. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it, literally crank yeah, it out. Yeah, literally crank it out. Babbage had been ass- assigned um, this job of checking the tables for errors. Uh, and they were full of errors. And, of course, even checking for errors was a nightmare. So he was a guy who was looking for a machine that could do all this math automatically and error-free. It's a lot of different kinds of math. He put enormous thoughts into how all these different mathematical functions could be broken up and and fed through machinery. But for him, it was strictly an arithmetic machine. Um, The vast bulk of the machine, if you look at the designs, um, 95% of the machine is specifically add, subtract, multiply, divide. That's it. Giant numbers, these 50-digit columns of numbers. And just use those basic functions sometimes to solve more complicated problems. Yes. But still, just math. Yeah, absolutely. And Ada? Her big leap came in one of these footnotes. And I think, you know, it's quite funny the way she says it, uh, because she says, I don't know if this has occurred to the guy who invented this machine. She uses the royal we, uh, you know, we do not know. She writes this extraordinary footnote where she says, actually... Because of some of the functions of this machine, and what she's talking about are these tiny widgets down at the bottom of the engine that we would now recognize as a sort of a rod logic. She says, because this is separated from the arithmetic, 
part. And because Babaji had designed this sort of addressing system so that um, you could send a number to an address and it didn't matter what the number was. You, would, you had already separated the information from what you were doing to the information. She said, for this reason, there's no reason that the machine is limited to arithmetic. It could, I think she says, it could work on any sort of information that you can turn into a system of relationships. Um, her example is, is music. She says, supposing you take music theory, in which she was very well trained, which is a system of rules. And if there was a way you could teach the machine or break this down into a program, another word she didn't use because they didn't have the vocabulary, then this engine could compose, you know, elaborate scientific pieces of music, she said, using logic, basically. And, and for this period, this is a completely bonkers thing to say. I mean, this is before Boole. This is 10 years before George Boole's system. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, the binary, you know, digital type computation we do today is based on Boolean logic, mm -hmm. operations like true or false, and or nor, and there's NAND as well, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Well, now they've simplified everything down to NAND, so I think you can get away with just the one. But Okay. Um, That's the basic system of logic that we use to compute today, but this was before he had even invented that. Yeah. Uh, and she realized that you could map logical operations onto this thing designed to do math. Yeah. And by that, you could solve any problem that could be stated in those terms. Absolutely. She even uses the word general symbols. This can be a machine for the manipulation of general symbols, which, of course, is what the term that Turing used, uh, you know, over 100 years later. Right. So it, like in the 1930s, Alan Turing, who now everybody knows because of the recent movie about mm. him, uh, invented what was called the universal Turing machine, the idea of a machine that could solve any computational problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she was 100 years ahead of that. And so, so people have come to call her the first computer programmer. <laughs> it might be more accurate to call her the first computer scientist, mm. although she mm -hmm. did um, – there is this enormous program, this fold-out uh, program for um, Bernoulli numbers um, – I mean, I should say there's there's a lot of controversy over what she wrote and what Babbage wrote and blah, blah, blah. But um, Well, you waded into the controversy. Um, I sort of tiptoed into it backwards. Well, <laughs> well, the extremes are she did all the work. Babbage did very little except the hardware. Mm. And the other side is she didn't do anything. She really wasn't involved at all, right? Yeah. It's and not you, a... found a, you found <laughs> with your own original research some document that, oh, yeah, that sort of settles the issue, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the if the, your true hater would find this. <laughs> your loveless hater? The the true loveless hater, which is a, a uh, um, breed of human being, um, would probably not be convinced. But it's all very difficult to say who did what because this is not a formal scientific relationship. You know, loveless did not have a official position. They were corresponding. And actually, for the most part, they were meeting in person because they were friends. Um, and Babbage was a terrible correspondent who wrote extremely short letters. But they were collaborators, obviously, and you you say that she she published these um, these insights in the form of these footnotes to Babbage's lecture, mm -hmm. and then you found this letter. Yeah, uh, it's a beautiful letter. I mean, I should say that Google Books was this incredible gift um, uh, because I started the comic right about the same time that um, Google Books started. How long ago was that then? Two thousand uh -huh. um, and nine. Uh huh. So, so no dusty archives for you. Just, no, just I could sitting at the computer. <laughs> kick back in the comfort of my own home. You know, scholars would be combing through archives for stuff, and I could just, you know, lounge back just as some random clown and just type in the search terms. You know, Babbage, Lovelace. You must have typed in some interesting search terms because there are a lot of people who studied these two, and yet you came up with something that hadn't really been recognized, right? Yeah, I mean, there was no reason. This it's a beautiful document. I mean, I found all sorts of 
hilarious stuff because actually they were they were both very famous people um, and Babbage was super famous which really surprised me he was um, a celebrity yeah absolutely yeah. and he was specifically a celebrity as the super genius who had invented this incredible calculating machine and, and the subject of a great deal of uh, ridicule as well because he was such a you know yeah he caused a lot of his cranky own. character <laughs> but, but you've already turned to the page mm. in the back of your book which has ample appendices of historical documents as well as your drawings your, your drawings of the analytical engine Want to read a little bit from this letter you discovered? Yeah, sure. Um, this letter, and there's no reason anyone would have read this because it's from uh, the Southern Review, which was a sort of a journal. Um, it, it reads like a cir- church circular, I think, more than anything else. Um, it was supposed to express the culture of the South um, after the, the Civil The American War. South. Oh, yeah. This is an, an American, um, a little American journal, I think out of Maryland. And uh, they published all sorts of things. I mean, one of the great things about Google Books is you can see things in situ. You know, you're not looking at an extract. And this uh, this letter actually opens with some enormous five-page excuse for why they're printing a letter from a northerner, <laughs> which is quite hilarious and really sets it in its time. And this guy was a professor, right, who had, yeah, it's who a, had met Babbage. Um, this is um, uh, Walter Reed, um, who was a professor of English in Philadelphia. The journal is 1867, but this letter was written in 1854. Um, and it's just your basic letter home, you know, how are things back, you know, home? I am in England. I'm having a great time. I'm meeting all these fantastic people, one of whom is the famous calculator, Charles Babbage. So he has this little chat with Babbage, um, and Babbage is instantly recognizable. And it's an incredibly vivid portrait of Babbage here. But right at the end, um, there's this fantastic bit. Yeah, after he got up to go, by some chance of conversation, the late Lady Lovelace's name, Lord Byron's daughter Ada, was mentioned. He knew her intimately and spoke highly of her mathematical powers and of her peculiar capability, higher, he said, than that of anyone he knew, to prepare, I believe it was, the descriptions connected with his calculating machines. I fear I am not expressing myself rightly here as to the precise nature of the subject he mentioned. Which, I mean, it's it's absolutely magical to find a thing like that, um, because I think that's Babbage trying to explain computer programming <laughs> to some guy uh, in 1854, Lovelace had died about two years before this, um, and, and it's really... She was how old? Uh, 36. Yeah, it's quite touching. He says, um, there was the recollection of her miserable life. He spoke of it as a tragedy that seemed to sadden him for the while as he recurred to it, speaking in a lower tone of voice and with a manner so subdued that as I stood listening to him, I could scarcely believe he was the same nervous-mannered gentleman who had entered the room an hour before. There was so much feeling in his looks and his manner that I did not feel at liberty to question him as the precise nature of the unhappiness of the life of which he was speaking and of its tragic termination. Um, and he was certainly thinking of her terrible death from cancer, um, which was very prolonged. Wow. Sydney, did you have a background in, in this kind of research, or is this just something that you know seized you, that possessed you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually have a degree in theater history. Okay, <laughs> um, okay. Although um, it's just a BA. <laughs> but a real a passion for history. Um, yeah, I like documents a lot. Um, I, actually, um, this thing that I'd done before the comic, I'd actually typed out the, the journals of Gilbert White, who was an 18th century naturalist. Um, I just like, I like stupid projects. <laughs> I'm not a fan of history in the sense of I, I'm really suspicious. And after writing this book, I'm crazy, super hysterically paranoid about secondary sources. Mm-hmm. But um, I love primary sources. I love primary documents, diaries, and all that stuff. Um, because it, 
I think only by reading that stuff can you realize how ambiguous and tragically gone the past is and how much we're interpreting um, based on our current kind of state of mind, what's happened in the past. And you run up against the question of who to trust at every turn, right? Yeah, absolutely. Whose diary, whose letter, (laughs) whose newspaper article Mm -hmm. are you going to believe? And and how much interpretation and mythology layers over people's Mm -hmm. lives afterwards. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Victorians of London really were writing and talking about each other all over the place. It was a very well-documented era. It doesn't mean the accounts are to be believed, Mm. but there are a lot of them, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I I guess, I mean, that sounds absolutely honest to me. Um, You know, there's no... This is just some random yeah. guy, and that does not sound in any way, shape, or no, no, that, by anyone. Yeah, why would he? He um, had no motive to. Yeah, dress and I mean, that up. Um, people love to tell anecdotes about both Lovelace and Babbage, uh, and both of them together, because they were such funny people. They'd say, "Oh my God, you won't, <laughs> you won't believe how you know the, how nutty these guys are." So um, yeah, they really become incredibly vivid personalities um, just from people <laughs> telling stories about. About them. I want to read from the back of your book, too, from that appendix, another document. Babbage never built the analytical engine, not even close. Nobody ever built it, despite lots of government funding. Yeah. Well, the government funding went to the difference engine, which was was also not built. Which was also not built. (laughs) So he didn't build the difference engine. Then he didn't build the the analytical analytical engine. engine. He did leave. I mean, I I should say this is in no way, shape, or form a theoretical machine. Um, The plans are extremely detailed. The tolerances are worked out. You know, every tiny lever fits with every other tiny lever. And people who've analyzed it say it would have worked. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, there's thousands of people. Pages of plans of the analytical engine. What kind of mind I know. could possibly visualize something so complicated? It's a, it's a staggering achievement in so many ways. Yeah. Uh, but this is, uh, as we say, the Victorians wrote a lot about each other, and there were lots of um, humor magazines, and there was a lot of satire, and so on and so forth. I guess this is um, post-Victorian. It's called I Am Working On It, or at least you titled it uh, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lord Moulton. Lord Moulton. Mm-hmm. Right. This is uh, in an address uh, to a 1914 conference commemorating the tercentenary of Napier's logarithm tables. And he related this cautionary tale. I'm reading your writing mm-hmm. there. He's talking about Babbage. He says, one of the sad memories of my life is a visit to the celebrated mathematician and inventor, Mr. Babbage. He was far advanced in age, but his mind was still as vigorous as ever. He took me through his workrooms. In the first room, I saw parts of the original calculating machine, probably the difference engine, mm-hmm. yeah, which had been shown in an incomplete state many years before and had even been put to some use. I asked him about its present form. I've not finished it because in working at it, I came on the idea of my analytical engine, which would do all that it was capable of doing and much more. Indeed, the idea was so much simpler that it would have taken more work to complete the calculating machine than to design and construct the other in its entirety. So I turned my attention to the analytical engine. After a few minutes' talk, we went into the next workroom where he showed and explained to me the working of the elements of the analytical machine. I asked if I could see it. I've never completed it, he said, because I hit upon an idea of doing the same thing by a different and far more effective method, and this rendered it useless to proceed on the old lines. Then we went into the third room. (laughs) There lay scattered bits of mechanism, but I saw no trace of any working machine. Very cautiously, I approached the subject and received the dreaded answer, It is not constructed yet, but I am working on it, and it will take less time to construct it altogether than it would have taken to complete the analytical machine from the stage in which I left it. 
I took leave of the old man with a heavy heart. Yeah, poor old Babbage. Well, I mean, he invented <laughs> fantastic things that actually worked. He just wasn't that into the implementation. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, he wasn't that serious about building it. Um, this might be a controversial thing for me to say, but there was this giant thing with the government grants, um, which is incredibly boring and complicated, um, like anything involving grants. You know, it's um, completely fascinating to everyone involved in it. <laughs> and that's the limit of its fascinations. But his bitterness over these sort of failed grants, um, I mean, they're not failed. He got a ton of money from the from the government to build this difference engine. Um, but he, he I, I almost feel he had this attitude, you know, I'll let you fund my engine when you come crawling on your knees. You know? He was always pissed off that people weren't recognizing him enough, that uh, he was, you know, underappreciated, right? Yeah, which he wasn't. Everyone called him a super genius. And- well, he was an insufferable egotist, wasn't he? Well, I I think it was a very sufferable <laughs> Somehow it's adorable when Babbage does it. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, but you say he came to kind of a bitter end. Didn't he end by thinking he was, you know, yeah. the world did not uh, fully recognize his accomplishments? There's someone who, who said um, at the end of his life he hated mankind in general and Englishmen in particular and the English government most of all. Um and uh, street organs, most of all. Oh, gosh, the street organs. Yeah, he got into this giant thing with um, the street musicians of London. Which These uh, were like organ grinders? Yeah, um, which were super annoying. I mean, everyone was annoyed by these They were things. like the boom boxes in the yeah. 80s. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to YouTube and put in street <laughs> organ, you will hear exactly how annoying they would have been. Um, <laughs> but Babbage always did the right thing in the wrong way. Um Every time someone started playing outside his house, he would run outside and grab a policeman and get them arrested and pursue them all the way to the magistrate's court and make sure that they got put up. And it, he turned it into this war in a lot of ways, which it probably didn't have to be. I mean, the, the musicians were awful, though. Like, there's horrible stories about them playing while he died outside of his house um, <laughs> and chasing him around. I mean, it, it turned in, You mean they did this to harass the old guy? Yeah. Oh, in um, his final hours. Oh, yeah, no, no it's, it's, it's really quite sad, um, but also hilarious. I think like everything involving <laughs> Babbage. <laughs> but yeah, he became incredibly famous. There's a quote I found um, from the 60s or 70s saying, to the English mind, the name of Babbage... Um, only arouses hazy um, ideas of calculating machines and street musicians. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a sad story. I haven't really described this book. I was trying to tell a friend about it and saying, I don't want to call it a comic book because though it has <laughs> comics illustrating both the real and imaginary adventures of uh, Charles Babbage and Ada, Countess of Lovelace, Loveless, mm. if you prefer, but it also has voluminous footnotes uh, with fascinating historical material. It has written passages, and it's got scientific explanations of some of the things that were going on then. And you throw in a few things from our own era, like pocket universes, which, by the way, have been covered on other installments of this radio show. Oh, cool. But uh, then we get to the end, and you have some historical documents, some of which we were reading from, and then some great... Uh, diagrams. And you've made them fun in the sense of cartoony, but also, I think, accurate? Yeah, I I was absolutely chuffed. I was just at the Computer History Museum, and I was quite terrified because I'm not any sort of computer scientist. I was just working right off the plans. Um, 
But the guys who cranked the difference engine were all, yeah, we love the diagrams. And, you know, as far as they could tell, they were correct. Oh, that's fantastic. Although there might be about five people in the world who actually wouldn't be able to spot an error. We in made those. a mistake here. <laughs> <laughs> but these are great drawings. They really are. And they're wonderful. Uh, again, I'm the kind of guy who, I know there are other people like me, I actually have an unpleasant sensation when I look at something and don't understand it. Yeah. So like when they showed the Colossus, the um, electromechanical computing machine that uh, Alan Turing invented mm -hmm. for decoding mm -hmm. the German codes, when they showed that in the movie, it was like, I want to know how that works. <laughs> and that's why I fell in love with your book right away, because uh, you do... You actually show various elements of the machine and explain meticulously how they work in a very fun way. Um, and you say you had to go to the original schematics mm -hmm. by Charles Babbage. Yeah. And then you worked it out using 3D imaging software of some kind? Yeah. I mean, I work – it's like my job. <laughs> um, I'm a computer animator, so I work in this software called Maya, which is this actually – super annoying and complicated and difficult and labyrinthine uh, and somewhat crashy software, which we make most of the big feature film VFX um, are done in Maya. Uh, the difference engine in the comic is in many ways <laughs> an expression of my relationship, rather baffling and frustrated with this um, software. But um, it is very, very, very good at what it does. And what it does is it enables you to do you know, very precise 3D reproductions of things. Um, so I just took the plans and started doing elevations um, and putting them together. I mean, it was it was actually really amazingly fun. It was like a puzzle because it, I had all the bits um, and then I had an overview, but the overview wasn't quite right. So it was all about making it all fit together. Um, and it was it was actually super fun. But you didn't leave it there. I mean, you could have just published the 3D renderings that you produce with this computer program. <laughs> I'm not. I, I'm, I'm crap at rendering. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but still, you did something so much that involves so much more work. You went and hand drew, again, in, in sort of cartoon fashion. And I mean that in an admiring way, by the way, because I think there's something. I don't know. There's something about cartoons that when they're well drawn, they communicate more than just about any other visual medium. Yeah, for me. I mean, a cartoon is about exaggerating the stuff that's important yeah. and simplifying everything. So it's actually a really good way to explain things. I mean, a lot of my inspiration was, you know, old Scientific American, you know, those things that used to have little how things work cartoons and mm -hmm. stuff like that. You know, they don't, people don't do that anymore, which I think is a shame. It was such a feature of um, popular science and kids' magazines um, from the 70s when I was growing up. It was, and people have the idea that, well, photographs and now computer graphics can be so much more accurate, but there's something, I don't know, I don't know what it is, Cindy, you might have thought about it, but something about the way a handmade drawing engages the eye and makes you really look at it mm. that uh, I think conveys more information in some cases than a photograph. Yeah, photographs show you everything, and, you know, 90% of that you don't really need to look at. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. What did it do for you, though, to spend... Got any estimate as to the number of hours you spent on this? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about hours. I spent about, oh, God, I spent about four or five months on the analytical engine part, which is actually not that much of the comic. Um, and it was not definitely something that I was supposed to do. My editor was a bit surprised. And <laughs> he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I just need to draw the analytical engine. And it's way harder than I thought it was going to be. And what did it do for you? Um, what was the effect? Oh, it was just so great. I mean, it was really... Um, 
I mean, for one thing, you know, as I said, I'm not a computery person um, in any way. I've, I've always disliked computers, actually. I hate to say that because most of my audience probably feels differently. But um, because it's invisible and I don't know how they work and people are always telling you you can't understand it because it's too complicated. Uh, you know, it's this hand wavy. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, don't don't worry about it. You You can't understand it. Um, whereas the analytical engine, you can understand it. It's, you know, it's complicated, but it's, you know, you can see the thing pushing the other thing and sending the thing around. Um, you know, it's a comprehensible thing and it's physical object. You know, it's not this microscopic electrons floating around. You know, it's, it's something that's comprehensible to someone like me, who's mm-hmm. basically a giant monkey. <laughs> <laughs> but you got the respect of computer scientists who approved of your renderings mm-hmm. of your renditions um you get the respect of uh, comic artists as well um yeah i think so i i don't know you haven't, you haven't heard from them from that audience <laughs> the, the comic artists <laughs> the comic artists of america have comic not readers it's, it's very old school the drawing um i'm a bit older than kind of your comic crowd i guess these days um and for me I'd like going back to Mad Magazine, you know, so it's it's quite old old fashioned in a lot of ways, maybe. Did you read comics growing up? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which ones? I, I loved Mad Magazine actually. Um and we used to have these piles. I actually grew up in Mexico and um so we had um everything was old. <laughs> we didn't get the new stuff. We always got these boxes of old stuff in the library. So we actually had Mad Magazine from, you know, the 60s, maybe. Um, you know, the real classics. Those are classics. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Fantastic stuff. Yeah, I'm wondering, looking at your style then, now I've got a whole new way of looking at it. Like, who might have mm-hmm. influenced you? It does look a bit like Mad Magazine mm-hmm. style. Um, also, Asterix. I loved Asterix comics. Um, and Asterix is probably the main... I mean, I think so, because we're talking all about the footnotes and the facts and the diagrams here, which is my favorite part. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I should probably point out to the audience that most of the comics actually did not actually happen and are extremely non-factually based, um, the crime-fighting part especially. Well, you have... Uh, this is called The uh, Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage. And they go through all kinds of adventures, but the adventures are based, you know, as your footnotes show, they're based on actual events and ideas that were circulating, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, through the, the milieu they lived in at the time in mm-hmm. 1820s, 1830s London. Yeah. So that's not that fanciful. <laughs> that's not that far-fetched. So, Sydney, mm. I know how Babbage got rich, right? Mm. Through various grants and you know, oh, patents no. and things. No? No, no. Babbage inherited money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I didn't know anything at all. And actually, he would uh, he would hate that because, I mean, one of the things that drove him nuts is this idea that he had used the government grants to, you know, to amass a personal fortune. Um, yeah, it's funny how that, I guess, still sticks as a... I mean, I, I made a joke about that in the very first comic I drew, you know, Babbage is like, no one understands, you know, or appreciates my genius. And someone says, didn't they give you that giant grant? <laughs> uh, but no, no, Babbage inherited an enormous fortune, actually. His father was a banker with tons of kids. I was I was assuming that he got rich off of his, uh, his uh, creations, but obviously not, although mm-hmm. he did... No, he spent quite uh, a bit of government cash. Yeah, he he spent all the government cash on these non-existent machines, and then a lot of his own cash on these non-existent machines. So yeah, no, he definitely um, spent his own money <laughs> as well as the government's money. How did you bankroll all the the countless hours you put into this book? <laughs> um, 
it's, I mean, just as a financial proposition, it's probably as great an idea as an analytical engine. Was your movie work, though, how you managed to yeah. survive during that time? I mean, for the most part, I drew the comic at night. You know, it ran as a webcomic for a long time. And I, I might go back to um, drawing it now that the book is done. Um, but yeah, I, I work I work all day um, in visual effects. And uh, yeah, I just used to go home at night and just draw comics. Um, I mean, I had an advance, which you know, was always nice. <laughs> But it's a pretty considerable pay cut from what I would have made just doing a movie. But you know. Speaking of movies, though, do you fantasize about someone making a Babbage and Lovelace movie? <laughs> well, I guess, you know, I'm getting calls. Um, Are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it'd be fun. I think it'd be hard. I think it'd be really hard. Uh, who, who can you imagine doing it, though? Well, I'm a control freak, so me, obviously. <laughs> oh, you mean totally animated movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, what I really wanted to do um, was a radio play because that's uh, way less work. <laughs> well, let me know. Let me know. I can do voices. <laughs> hey! <laughs> no, it's it's an incredible story, and I've known about the two of them for years, but I've really never delved into it mm-hmm. before your book. Do you think about what it would be like to go back to that era? Do you, would you like to have uh, been there? Back in time? I mean, yeah. so long as I could come back. Uh, right, right. <laughs> I mean, I think um, you have to love those machines. And I mean, it would be amazing to meet the people and see what they were really like. When you live in England, you're you're surrounded by all these bits of things. I I was just up uh, north. There's a wonderful museum of jacquard looms up in Macclesfield near Manchester. These are the looms that use punch cards. Yeah. Ancestors of computer punch cards. Exactly. And it's this Beautiful. I mean, I'm sure, okay, it was child labor and, you know, terrible, I'm sure, in a lot of ways. But, you know, these beautiful machines in this, you know, <laughs> lovely old building, you know, I, I think there's just aesthetically, I guess that's why steampunk is, you know, such a thing. Like, aesthetically. I was wondering about that, too. Things were nice, you know, like made of, you know, nice textures. If I, I was just um, at Mountain View at the Computer History Museum. They actually let me get my face right up against the difference engine um, and the smell of the hot metal and the oil. Ooh. Uh, ooh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, and the machining of the parts themselves. Yeah. They're made of things like brass, mm-hmm. right? They're just beautiful. Yeah, it's just it's just this gorgeous, sexy object, you know, and you're, you then you look at your computer and it's just this gray box. and you're, oh. I'm with you. And one of the, the, the fascinating... Um, Stories, and, and I'd read this before, but it came back uh, to me when I was reading your book, is that when Babbage first announced his idea, right, he said, you know, something like, wouldn't it be great if we could calculate with steam? Yeah. So it was steam, like this magical mm-hmm. stuff. Obviously, steam doesn't do any calculating at all. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's all these machine parts driven by steam. But steam had this aura, I guess, around around that time. Absolutely. The steam age, they called it. I mean, you can actually see the phrase, the steam age. I actually did, you know, those Google engram things where you can do the statistics on how words appear. You can see the steam age die off and the nuclear age take off <laughs> right around the same time. Really? It, I, yeah. I thought electricity came in between. Yeah. Steam age, the electrical age, the nuclear age. You know, it's it's the, the power. The age, yeah. Yeah. It's like the source of power ha- always has a mystique, mm. um, I guess. Mm. But the idea that it was just boiled water, just water vapor. Yeah. But it's, you know... Those machines breathe. They chuff and and it's it's this very organic um, sort of soundscape. 
you know, and I think there's a part of the human brain that reacts to that in a very visceral way that, you know, that breathing. Absolutely. I mean, locomotives are always likened to living beings, Mm -hmm. you know, big animals pulling us around. Wow. What's next, Sydney? (laughs) Aside from the movie. Uh, yeah, well, aside from the, the movie, after, well, of course, I'm going to retire on my Victorian computing graphic novel millions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I have to finish this book tour. I'm, I'm only thinking a day at a time right now. So it's, there's no uh, new project obsessing you right now? Um, Nothing to can... let off steam? <laughs> um, I, there's a lot more comics I'd love to draw because they, they're just, those two, Loveless and Babbage, they touch off so many neat kind of things that resonate with the present day that I, I'd love to sit down and draw more comics um, when I get a moment from I all this do. fancy book hype. I hope you do. Uh, well, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Sydney Padua is the author of The Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage, the mostly true story of the first computer. And uh, this being the end of the show, it is a time for some sober hindsight wherein I correct any mistakes and false impressions I left in the interview. First of all, I hope that no one uh, thought I implied that Ada Lovelace herself uh, happened upon the notion of the universal Turing machine. No, the credit for that goes entirely to Alan Turing, but she did, again, anticipate the idea of general-purpose computing, which is a a huge uh, conceptual breakthrough. And uh, speaking of Turing, I really messed up when I said that that electromechanical uh, code-breaking device depicted in the movie The Imitation Game was the Colossus. No, it was uh, the bomb. That was its actual name. Uh, The Colossus came a few years later. It was the first truly electronic digital computer. It was uh, built at Bletchley Park, the think tank depicted in the imitation game. And uh, it did incorporate ideas by Alan Turing, but he was not the designer. Uh, And I'm sure I committed other errors, but uh, I am blissfully unaware of them. So I'm just going to say goodbye and uh, send my best wishes out to all the moms out there especially my own dear mom. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. And uh, you can always listen online, of course, at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com or on your favorite podcast app. Hey,